Theoretically, China has more than enough power generation capacity, and yet at peak demand, it doesn't have enough. But and as we've seen in sort of September and October, these aren't peak periods. Um, and so it would turn out that even at, not at peak demand times, China doesn't have enough capacity. And so part of the issue here as well is system design. Provinces don't necessarily trade with each other, or sort of there are certain provincial hubs that do trade. And sometimes they actually need to send power to other provinces, even if they're facing shortages. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Michal Maiden, director of the China Energy Program at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies and author of China's Power Crisis, Long-Term Goals Meet Short-Term Realities. Welcome to the interview, Michal. Thank you, Markham. It's great to be here. Look, I confess that I don't know much about China's energy system, particularly its power system. And uh, maybe we could start uh, with an overview of that, of the power system, if you don't mind. We can try to keep it brief. And, and you know, I'll have you know that many other people and also longtime China watchers are not, don't fully understand how things work. It's a, it's a continuous puzzle to all of us, but just to kind of set the general framework there's obviously the Chinese government, the state council is the government, and a very important actor here is the National Development and Reform Commission, or NDRC, that you will see often in press reports. That is China's sort of central planning authority. They do a lot of, I guess, forward-looking supply-demand balances. They manage prices, and they allocate, again, sort of supply-demand and prices. So they are hugely influential, and much more influential um, than well, China's de facto Ministry of Energy, which is a tiny unit within NDRC. And they're also much more influential than the Ministry of Environment and Ecology. In terms of the power sector itself, we have two grid companies and five power generators, all state-owned. And perhaps the last important thing to know that is sort of translated on a provincial level as well. But the last important thing to note is that power prices are set by the government um, sort of by end user with a little bit of fluctuation. So there's a little bit of room for, for movement. It used to be um, that prices could move up 10% or down 15% and that could be determined locally. So if I understand this correctly, the national system, it's got five power generators and two transmission companies? Exactly. And, and utilities at the provincial level are, are then involved in distribution? Exactly. They sort of work with the state grid at the local level and with the utilities and with the generators at the local level. Great. Okay. Now we understand the basic structure of their, of their power system. So China's experiencing what we often see in the media uh, described as an energy crisis. Uh, maybe you could give us an idea of how that, got, you know, the roots of that and what the energy crisis looks like. We can start with what the energy crisis looks like. That's actually easier than the roots. Um, it started off with a few power outages and this isn't the first instance, right? We have to bear in mind that China this year, but also historically has had power outages. We've had some sort of last winter, we had a few in June and they were widely expected, um, some power outages. But in September, we started seeing recurring power shortages um, throughout the country to the extent that in October, 
which is the the um, national day, so the national kind of holiday. Um, over 20 out of 31 provinces in China suffered from prolonged outages. And what was notable was that it was both in the industrial sector, and again, industry has gotten used to some degree of power outages, but also residential users. And that is extremely rare because really the system tries to ensure supplies to households at any cost. But here we had power outages throughout. So both for industry and for, for residents. Okay, and uh, well, let's talk about the causes of those. Uh, we've got uh, coal shortages uh, and high price of coal. Uh, what else uh, is causing the energy crisis? I mean, put simply, it really was a perfect storm of supply and demand, but it was very much exacerbated by policies. So on the supply side, as you mentioned, we've had coal supplies um, being played by anti-corruption investigations, safety investigations. Again, coal mines in China have been notoriously unsafe. Um, again, crackdowns, environmental crackdowns. Again, China has lots of coal mines. And, and so the idea is to gradually get rid of the least efficient and the sort of the unsafe coal mines. So we've had a crackdown on those. Um, so really on the supply side, supplies have been growing faster than historically. Um, and throughout the year, we've had shortages in renewables as well. So hydro shortages in southern China, um, wind, lower wind in northern China. Again, this very much resonates with what's been happening in Europe and elsewhere around the world. Um, so really, and in terms of imports, China has issued a ban on Australian coal imports. So that didn't help supplies. And then COVID-related restrictions. We've had typhoons that have impeded flows of coal into China. So supplies have been low. Meanwhile, demand has been very strong. We've had a post-COVID recovery that has been, again, very, very strong industrial demand. A lot of manufacturing activities in Southeast, Southeast Asian countries, again, that are plagued with COVID outages. That's all sort of reshored or, or moved back to China in cases where it relocated away from China. So very strong demand. But this was not new to September. This is sort of what's been a bit puzzling. You know, supply growth has been slow all year. Demand has been strong all year. But in September, we sort of got to this explosion, I guess, of, uh, of, of the situation where, so building up throughout the year, the coal shortages have led to a spike in international coal prices. Because of the domestic pricing mechanism, coal-fired generators had few incentives to buy the coal or to store it because they were selling it at a loss. And because of sort of the post-COVID recovery, the government limited the increase of prices, that tolerated fluctuation that we discussed, that was sort of shelved in order to help businesses and, and households recover. Um, so you had the pricing impact and power generators sort of said, look, we're losing money here. We just don't want to, we don't want to run, right? They, they undertook maintenance. And so there were less supplies. What was often cited in the media as well is something called the dual control policies where you know, the government has set targets for energy intensity reduction. So basically that's energy consumption per unit of GDP. And every province has sort of, is, is supposed to reduce its energy intensity as well as its overall energy consumption. And in June, the government published a list of the provinces that were sort of not meeting those targets. And they had a, a system of a red and an amber and a green light. And the ones that were red lights were really sort of far away from meeting their targets. And so a number of provinces that were sort of, so to speak, shamed by the central government 
at least in the press, it was reported that they were shutting down the power in order to meet their targets. Well, that sounds like a very complex kind of situation. And what then is the, uh, I get, yes, now at the NRDC, uh, what are they doing and what are the provincial uh, governments doing, if anything? So it's been very much a mixed bag and it sort of depends on what are the real, well, the real, what are the causes for the various outages. In Northeastern China, where a lot of residential use has been impacted, it's very much the, the supply demand shortage and, and prices. In Southern China, there has been a question of, you know, dual control policies and are the government simply looking to accelerate their economic restructuring, which means shifting away, you know, sort of saying, we have different priorities now. We want to rise up the value chain. We no longer want these highly polluting manufacturing activities. And so basically we're gonna use this to accelerate the shift in, in our economic structures. So the response from the central government has been to try and hit on the short-term um, causes, but also the longer-term uh, concerns. So in the short-term, it's been, let's increase supplies, right? And I think everybody saw the headlines of supply at any cost. And that, you know, people around the world took that to mean that China would bid up gas or coal or oil in order to ensure supplies. And essentially it was an order for everyone to make sure that they were bringing in coal, gas, oil, whatever they needed to bring in. Um, but the any cost I think referred to, even if it is at a loss for them financially. Um, at the same time, the government did introduce power price reform. So there have been sort of a few, a few elements there, but essentially it's been um, to get more, more coal traded on, on spot markets and on rather than having sort of long-term contracts decided between the grid and the buyers. So again, to get the markets more involved in, uh, in, in becoming basically sort of arbiters of supply and demand. Um, there's also been greater tolerance for price increases. So that benchmark pricing that we discussed earlier, that's now allowed to increase by 20%, to, to rise or to fall by 20%, but also heavy users, there's no limit on the upside for them. So again, there are sort of market signals here for the least efficient users to be taxed more heavily. Um, and so again, this is the kind of both the short term, which is to increase supplies. And the idea is that with better pass through of prices, then coal generators will, will be able to pass on more of the costs to end users. But also kind of medium to long term, this is a change um, of the kind of signals of, of and, and it should allow renewables also to become more competitive uh, in the power market. Now, I understand that the Chinese, Chinese government is accelerating the construction of wind and solar capacity, as well as emergency backup and peak shaving power sources. Could you describe uh, what's going on there, please? So I think what the outages have highlighted is that, you know, we've, if we take it one step back, actually, there's there's a huge amount of capacity, of power capacity in China. And you, again, you read a lot of stories about how coal plants are operating at 50% utilization and gas plants and renewables are also working at, at low capacity. And so, again, theoretically, China has more than enough power generation capacity. And yet at peak demand, it doesn't have enough. But, and as we've seen in sort of September and October, these aren't peak periods. Um, and so it would turn out that even at, 
not at peak demand times, China doesn't have enough capacity. And so part of the issue here as well is system design. Provinces don't necessarily trade with each other. Or sort of there are certain provincial hubs that do trade. And sometimes they actually need to send power to other provinces, even if they're facing shortages. Um, meanwhile, there's not sort of a, a national trading system that would allow to move surplus capacity from one province to the other and allocate those resources. Essentially, every province has thus far operated as a mini fiefdom. So when you've had shortages, every provincial governor has wanted to make sure that they have enough baseload supplies of coal, of nuclear, to the extent that they have nuclear, and then you know the intermittent uh, sources such as renewables and gas that will help deal with, with peak demand. Um, and so it's been clear that China needs more of everything, right? Of coal supplies as well. And of course, that's been an issue at COP26, but much more of renewable capacity, but also of ways to deal with the intermittency of renewable power. And so storage and more flexible systems. Um, so to have basically the hardware, the physical infrastructure, while it also works on, I guess, the software, right, the market mechanisms to ensure that that physical infrastructure is operating at its most efficient. When I, uh, when you were describing that, uh, I couldn't help but think of the reforms that are going on in the United States, uh, where their creation of new markets, new market mechanisms, and new transmission all designed to, and, and also I should mention, uh, new grid technologies to, so to allow more renewables onto the existing grid. And it, when I compare that to what you were saying about China, it seems like there's a lot of room in the Chinese system for reform and improvement and just to make it more efficient than it currently is. There's a huge amount of room there. And I think also, you know, we at least as China watchers, we're all often sort of fixated on the exceptionalism of China, of its system. Whereas in reality, there are a lot of shared challenges and shared experiences from other markets. Um, but there is a huge amount of room for economic efficiency, I guess, if sort of by allowing the market to play um, a greater role. And that has sort of been the general direction of travel with the Communist Party saying that it will allow markets again to play a decisive role in the economy. But this is where China's political economy is unique because I think we've seen the limits sort of the government is reluctant to completely rely on markets. It is, um, it has remained very much sort of willing to, to retain control over certain outcomes. And I think there's a balance in China between wanting the most economically efficient outcomes and the most effective outcomes. And sometimes those need to, or at least the thinking is that those need to be guided by the state. That's where the importance of the state-owned companies that don't always operate according to you know, economic realities or bottom line imperatives. And so it's a very interesting balance that happens in China between the state and the market. And there's a constant sort of tweak between, I guess, efficient and effective. There's a lot of discussion in the West, of course, around the coal that uh, China burns, and it is building some more coal-fired plants. Uh, what, is, uh, what are the trends in the power system with respect to wind and solar and, and uh, storage versus uh, hydro and nuclear and, and, and coal and gas? Is that mix changing dramatically? Is it forecast to change? dramatically as, as China tries to you know, achieve its uh, commitment to carbon neutrality by 2060? 
it's going to be sort of radically transformed, right? The plan is, at least if we look at the overall energy mix, China consumes sort of over 80% of fossil fuels in its energy mix. By 2060, that should be 80% of renewables in the energy mix. So there's a very, there's a transformative change that's about to happen in China. Um, the exact path is still unclear, but if we look at power generation, coal is still 66% or so of installed capacity. But, and even the government forecasts talk about renewables becoming the main sources of incremental growth. Um, gas plays a tiny role in power generation in the power system. It's only 6% of installed capacity. Um, and even though it's expected to grow, it's unlikely to be uh, sort of the, the bulk or the backbone of the power sector. So really renewables are set to become the most dominant source uh, in the Chinese power system with the role of nuclear highly debated. Um, if you look at sort of various government forecasts about 2050 and 2060, the role of hydro is, is capped roughly. I mean, there's, there's a certain percentage, but it's unlikely to grow considerably. Um, but nuclear really does present a really big differential amongst, amongst the various uh, forecasts. Um, you know, thermal capacity, coal and gas will sort of depend on how much carbon capture and storage technologies are developed in China. And so, again, when you look at forecasts, you do see quite a wide variation between sort of, you know, wind and solar accounting for, for anything from 50% to 80% of the power stack. Um, but the other thing, of course, that we have to bear in mind that China is a developing country. And so for the next five, even 10 years, there is economic expansion and activity and therefore energy demand growth. And that has to be accommodated. That's right, the energy trilemma of the emerging markets and the developing world where they need to transition while growing. Now, there's a lot of discussion in Canada, particularly coming out of uh, Alberta, uh, the big hydrocarbon producer uh, in the country, about expanding LNG uh, capacity in order to serve China and help to decarbonize the Chinese power grid. And it's just assumed, I think, that if you have supply, uh, China will take uh, as much as you can provide. But what you've just su uh, suggested, if I understand this correctly, is that in fact gas is likely to not to grow significantly during this restructuring of the uh, of the power generation and the, and the various fuel supplies. Have I got that right? I mean, this is where the I guess enormity of the Chinese market and the energy system is a bit mis for 8.34% of the energy mix. That's, but you know, last year that was in 2020, that was 320 BCM of demand. And even though gas is unlikely to exceed 15% of uh, the energy mix in the next decade, you know, it could still double. So we're looking at a market that will go from 320 BCM to 600 BCM. And it's still going to be tiny in terms of the Chinese energy mix. So there's a huge amount of room for, for more gas in the system, even in the power sector, you know, where today gas is 50 BCM roughly of demand. And it's unlikely to be, again, a major share, as, as we just said, but there is still scope for it to double in the next sort of five to 10 years. So that's again, a 50 BCM increment that could come just from the power sector. And I think any supplier would take that today. <laughs> Now, uh, is there any movement in 
China towards hydrogen, because that's uh, a fuel that we haven't talked about yet. But I know in Canada, it's, it's talked about as a uh, storage capacity for uh, for the uh, for renewables, for instance. Uh, so what role uh, will it play in China, if any? Hydrogen is an interesting one. China's already the world's largest producer of hydrogen, um, but 95 or 97% of that is coal-based hydrogen. Um, and there's already been a lot of developments in China and a focus on hydrogen in transport. So it's got a fuel cell vehicle program. The Winter Olympics that will take place in February are supposed to be fueled by hydrogen. Um, we will see exactly what that looks like. But so there have been longstanding plans to develop hydrogen in transport, but again, it's all been coal-based since the, what's called the 3060 pledges. So the uh, Xi Jinping's pledge to peak emissions by 2030 and to reach carbon neutrality by 2060, there's been a renewed focus on hydrogen, all colors of hydrogen. Um, so both coal-based, but also blue hydrogen based on gas and green hydrogen developing storage. It's quite new, um, but a huge amount of financing and provincial plans and, and hype around it, um, which suggests that you know there will be a lot of developments on hydrogen in China. But I think it will be interesting to watch because we'll get a bit of everything. You know, provinces with a pretty mature gas infrastructure network will opt for blue hydrogen, whereas provinces that have uh, renewable curtailment issues will you know, try and develop green hydrogen. And of course, everyone in the world is watching um, you know, whether or not China can develop electrolyzers and reduce the costs of electrolyzers, much like it did for solar panels and wind turbines and, and batteries, where you know, by increasing by sort of economies of scale in China, it was able to cut uh, costs. So I think there's a huge amount of hope that China will be able to do something similar for electrolyzers. I think it remains to be seen, but there will certainly be a huge amount of development happening there. Well, final question, uh, Michal. Uh, my understanding is that, that China will, like most uh, countries, uh, electrification will play a big role in its decarbonization pathway. And uh, to what extent is China planning to electrify and what uh, impact might that have on the power, uh, power system? They're quite ambitious projects to electrify and again sort of electric vehicles China is leading in electric vehicles and battery capabilities because of you know policy programs that date over 20 years now that they were born from a necessity sort of an industrial necessity by sort of a recognition that China couldn't compete with traditional car makers and would have to sort of leapfrog to electric vehicles um, from concerns about energy security and becoming reliant on imported oil, which they are today. But sort of that was the um, that was the beginning of electrification, which did again didn't come for decarbonization or for climate per se, but from other reasons. And just a year or so ago, you know, we wrote a paper about sort of how China's post-COVID recovery pointed to accelerated electrification, again, because this was a build back better type strategy, but without necessarily bringing about decarbonization because coal was so important in the recovery. So electrification has been an ongoing theme regardless of the 3060 goals. Now there are also efforts to decarbonize the power system. It all suggests that these concerns, these issues about reliability, volatility of prices, 
um, will only become more acute over time as China's power demand increases um, and its ability to scale up and to, and, and to, I guess, manage both the hardware and the software will, I think, be a challenge. And we, I think, will see more of these kinds of outages and crises, hopefully not as bad as severe, um, but I think it will take time for these to be resolved. Michal, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you.